Hi there, I'm Karen Dunn of KMD Productions. From the equipment manufacturers to the engineers to the business people behind the scenes. Over the years, every member of the Pro Audio Corner of the music industry have become family to me. And it's my job to bring the whole eclectic crew together. Each episode, I'll introduce you to one of these characters and open a window into my world of creating community in Pro Audio. Thanks for tuning in to One and Done. Today on One and Done, I'm talking to Gavin Lurson, the owner and mastering engineer at Lurson Mastering. Um, are you videoing this? Because if so, I should go sit in the studio. We're just starting it this way. But if you want to go sit in the studio, it's up to you. Well, it would be better than this, right? It's up to you. My whole thing's just about, it's about the community and what people are really like. Well, how do I look? I, I'm, <laughs> I thought it was just audio, so I'm, I've kind of got that woken it's up. It's fine. Today. How's this? That makes me look like a hunter. You're fine. You're really fine. Okay. You look younger without your beard. Really? Yeah. Yeah, well, that's good. I'll take that. I miss the I miss the community and you and the golf. Someone was asking me how I met you, and I don't really remember. And because it seems like I've always known you, and I know you're totally into motorcycles. So why don't we start talking about that part first? Um, once you tell me again. Because there is such a huge motorcycle community in the pro audio community, why don't you tell me what kind you have to people who care about this and why it's such a cool bike and how you got into it too? Okay. Um, I don't believe in the pro audio business that anybody's ever inquired about my uh, love of motorcycles, <laughs> but I, you and I have spoken about it because you've got a son who wants to ride. Yeah. Helped you uh, figure out what information to give him about helmets and so forth. I'm exactly. Sure. Yeah. Um, and oddly enough, I just got back from a, an overnight camping trip with Michael Romanowski, who's up in the uh, pro audio community up in Berkeley, California. Um, we have these, uh, big, what's called adventure bikes, um, BMW GS, uh, 1250s. And they're basically off-road on and off-road motorcycles that, um, are just capable of doing anything. So we load them up with camping gear. And we go out and do overnights. Um, and we go into all kinds of crazy, crazy off-road terrain. Sometimes, you know, you can get slightly injured a little bit with coming down because, you know, if you go through, like, what we call rock gardens, you know, sometimes mm. the bike kind of gets caught in a rock and your body keeps going. Um, so stuff like that does happen out there. But um, when I was a kid, I grew up in Cape Town, South Africa, and my dad always had motorcycles. And he was a, a prominent journalist down in, in Cape Town and actually for the whole country. Um, and he, um, his love of motorcycles um, led him to doing a weekly column on reviewing what would come out. So in addition to two bikes that he owned, he would, he would have a rotating bike every week that the manufacturers would want him to write about. So there were just bikes all over the place. And he would always pick him out on Sunday mornings. And most of the time I'd go in the back with him and we'd ride around the Cape Peninsula and do all kinds of cool stuff and meet cool people. And it was more than just, you know, connecting with the wind and the earth and being free and open and, and traveling, you know. It was also the community of people, which I've always been a fan of, uh, just really nice, mellow people. And because my dad was this journalist, he had this gift of talking to people and we would stop at a store or something and I'd go in and get, you know, some potato chips or something. I'd come out and he'd be having this 
deep conversation with like somebody from the Hells Angels, you know, and it was like I would w- witness this, and I'm, you know, my dad had this amazing gift of doing that. He's still at it. He's up in Marin, where you live, and he puts his skills to work for the Marin Humane Society now, and writes for them, writes blogs for them, and all that. Um, so all of that positivity kind of led me into the the love of it all, you know, the all inclusive kind of thing. And, you know, I went for periods of my life where I didn't have a bike, but um, for several years now, I've, I've had one and I was street riding and, and um, in California, there's so much you can do. Big Sur and Northern California, Southern California. I mean, it's just endless. And so I just wanted to expand that out and do off-roads and camping and overnight and stuff like that. So that's how I got into the big adventure bikes. And there's people in our community that are into it. Ivana Manley has one. Right. Um, Romanowski, as I mentioned. Um, Pete Lyman is getting out into it in Nashville. Reed Ship. Oh, wow. Wants to, wants to jump into it. So um, we, we gather and we talk about all this stuff. Chuck Ainley's into it. Yeah. Um, in fact, Michael... Chuck and I uh, rode through Big Sur together all the way up to Mendocino and back one time. Oh, nice. Well, we were talking about doing a pro audio motorcycle I event hope, at one point. I hope that happens someday. That would yeah. be, that would just be so magical. Yeah, we were going to do, I guess we we're going to put a bus together and do like the audio hearing tests and go from San Francisco to LA through Big Sur, stop in Santa Cruz, visit Universal Audio and Make a whole big thing out of it. Yeah. Like, like think, golf tournament, you know? Yeah. I think the logistics just kind of overwhelmed us at the time. <laughs> <laughs> Gathering a bunch of audio people going to do a motorcycle trip from San Francisco to Big Sur. Yeah. So, yeah. The motorcycle, it definitely is a community feel, right? Yeah. It, have you always been community minded? Because you're a huge advocate of the pro audio community, too. Yeah, I do have a philosophy on community, if that's what the question is. Um, that is going to be the next question. Well, I'll tie them together. How about that? Perfect. <laughs> um, one of the things I learned early on, you know, I got a job with, with Doug Sachs back in 1991. In fact, this June will mark 30 years being in the in the audio industry. Wow. Uh, Mid-June. So we're uh, four, four or five weeks out of exactly 30 years that I've been in this business which is uh, something you know but i yeah. learned something very early on in those days um it was interesting to me because i came out of college i was a student at berkeley college of music and um one one thing i noticed is that a lot of these facilities would compete against each other to the point where um i, I shouldn't say a lot some i witnessed mm-hmm. some, some people and some studios would have this mindset that they wanted to be the only studio in the business and that's it. And it always kind of struck me as a strange contradiction because if you really outdo all your competitors and you get everything, which is the way I witnessed some people conduct themselves, there really won't be an industry. So if you really want to look at it holistically as a whole, um, the best thing you can do is support your competitors which I call colleagues. I would I wouldn't even say competitors. Right. Romanowski, for instance, he does exactly what I do. We would take gigs from each other if we could. We probably wouldn't, but I'm just saying by concept, you would expect us to. But yet we camp together at night, you know, in in the Carrizo Plain, and it, it, it's it's um, if you support the community and you pull up a seat at the table, 
and you interact with that table, there's what you're doing is you're supporting an industry, and then you have a place in it. So you cannot get wrapped up. This is my opinion. You cannot, mm-hmm. I cannot get wrapped up in trying to get rid of competition or, or you know, that kind of thing. So what that results in is my tremendous supportive community, and I, I, I've had that viewpoint ever since I can remember. I've never not had that viewpoint. Um, and as a result of that, um, I've made some amazing friendships in this business that I would consider beyond just business friendships, personal friendships. Right. It goes a lot deeper. It's it's a supportive thing. And you're, you're supporting a, a community. And, you know, right now, um, it's particularly important because you've got an industry that is undergoing a revolution and we're in the midst of it. Years from now, we'll look back on this time as this tipping point, this revolution in the industry that manufactures social media, the internet has, has affected. It's, it's taken value off of, off of music. So now you have to revalue it in some way. Where's the equity? And people are figuring that out. And the people that provide service to the music makers, people like me, and my colleagues, um, we're in this position where, because of the value being reinterpreted, um, it's very difficult for the money to flow into the services that create music. Right. So we're all just kind of hanging on. We're all too old to do something else. And we're also, our head's in the game. We don't want to do something else. Right. So, so we're all kind of banding together to hang on to what is, to promote best practices, to promote all kinds of ways that the community can thrive and be healthy, including interacting with you at the golf tournament, bringing people together, tech awards, all that kind of stuff. Um, and so, you know, we're, we're looking at the importance of, of especially now, keeping everything together. And um, you really have to commit yourself to it, I think. I think that's, that's kind of where we, we want to say we, all the people I interact with are coming from on this, you know? Yeah, I don't. I can't think of anyone that I know in in the industry on the creative side, engineers, producers, any of those guys who protect their information. And it seems yeah. to me that with everybody meeting together and having relationships that go outside of work, that you everybody grows, right? So whether it's your your techniques that you're using while you're working, that someone, another mastering engineer talked to you about, and you know, oh, let me try that. Um, it's a growth experience, both personally and professionally. And it seems like it's a benefit for everybody. Well, everybody's got a style. You know, when, you, when you're working in front of a console, it's like an instrument. So you can sit down, and I've actually done this many, many times. You can sit down and show somebody exactly what you do, uh, either a client or a student coming into the business. And I've centered my volunteer efforts on, on that, as you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's where I always go, is to the new people coming in. The right. Fresh- you know, you can you can teach somebody what you do to push the buttons you push, and it's not going to sound like you. So that's right. Um, it, it's interesting. You can there's no, to me there's no secrets. You can give away all your secrets. I've never even looked at it like that. But you know, you don't have to be protective, and you know, you can look at at the greats. You know, look at somebody like Al Schmidt, who we just lost. Um, look how generous he was with his information, yeah. and 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 look what came about. From that, you know, uh, a large group of people that are now, you know, uh, practicing best practices, 
Right. It's important actually to do it because if people like Al and also the late great Ed Journey, these people, um, if they don't do that, you've got a bunch of, you know, fresh faces coming into the business. You've got a bunch of tools. Nobody's going to know how to use them. So um, it's it's actually, you know, even if you were to look at it from a selfish perspective, you got to share that stuff out. You know, right. you want the industry to continue forever, right? Yeah, you love it. You want it to keep going, so you want to be able to share with people coming in. Yeah, and you know, there's so many new technologies emerging. I mean, I think that probably in 25 years from now, um, listening to music is going to be an experience that's completely different than what it is today. It, who knows how? But um, there's so much emerging, so it's really important just to keep, you know, a core concept going and a community going. You know, so that the community is important, and I think you can look at it from multiple angles. You know, you can look at it from your heart and soul, and you want to be a giver. That's great. You know, most people, as you point out, that I know, that you know, are like that. Um, but even if you, like I said a minute ago, if you if you look at this even selfishly, you still got to do the same thing because we've got to have an industry. Uh, it's very important because music has permeated humanity for way before technology existed. People always consume music, and I'm happy to have a seat at the table in this industry at this current time, you know? Yeah, it's, it's definitely an interesting time. Yeah. So let's talk about your uh, creative upbringing. Now, your dad's a journalist, your mom's a painter, and I know that you have your urban photography that I love seeing on social media. Yeah, I'll share that. Uh, were you, uh, have you always been surrounded with an artistic community growing up? I don't know that I'd phrase it that way. I grew up in, in Cape Town, South Africa, and, and um, it was during the apartheid era. And there was a, it was, it was really a horrible system to grow up in. And, you know, that there were school bullies everywhere. And I was a victim of the, the school bullies, you know, so you have to run and hide all the time. It was just a horrible uh, time. And the culture, it, all that stuff it permeated the culture you know so um my my thing that i used was attracted to is music at that time still mm -hmm. um and songs became my friends you know because i had to kind of get away from that that whole school system and um i would sit and i had this radio and there was a radio station called radio five that would play the hits from america you know uh -huh. They would play me in the evening, so I would sit there with my radio very low and level. I wouldn't wake up the family, so I really kind of got into the arts there. And my mom actually used to do oil paintings down in Cape Town, and uh, she sort of sacrificed having a career to raise me and my brother. And while my dad was a journalist, and that eventually got him sent to Washington D.C. as a political correspondent for the South African chain of newspapers. Oh, uh -huh. It was really his. And my mom's way of getting me and my brother out of that country so we didn't have to serve in the army when you get out of school, which is what you had to do during that apartheid era. They did not want us to support that system down there, which ultimately broke down, you know. Right. So when I came to the States, I kind of was recovering from that kind of upbringing and gravitated towards music and photography because the photography came about because my my dad used to take me to his newspaper building and I would go down to the fourth. Uh, no, he was on the fourth floor. I think the third floor, which was photography floor. Oh, nice. Old newspaper printing. Yeah. And because I was a kid, you know how people are with kids. They would 
uh, take a liking to me while my dad was up there working. I was wandering around looking at all this old school equipment. And I remember one thing happened where I put my hand on a piece of paper and then it was like, you know, that, that where they, how they used to print photos and they shined the light. And then I took my hand away and there was the imprint of my hand. Right. That just twisted it was my magic. So then I, <laughs> I wanted to be a newspaper photographer and follow my dad's footsteps. So I really was into it. And, you know, music took a foothold once I went to Berkeley and then moved out to LA. But I always just kind of kept up catching that urban grit stuff. So now my goal is to take awesome photos of my iPhone. And I started this Instagram page to put that up. And then it became more about work. Now, once in a while, I put the urban grid up there. So it's kind of this combo. My Instagram is a combo of motorcycle stuff, work things, and urban grid photos. <laughs> so yeah, I'm, I, I'm into the arts. I love exploring. Now, do you, do you have a real camera or do you shoot everything on your phone? Now it's the phone. I've had cameras and I've gone through them and you have to change them so many times these days that I kind of get sick of that. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to use the iPhone camera and see what I can snag with that. You can get some great shots. You've gotten some really good ones. That tree one that you just had. Yeah. That was really cool. Yeah, that was. um, So a friend of mine um, was in town and he needed a portrait. So another friend of mine was taking the portrait and I was just meeting up with them for some coffee and that was in downtown LA in the arts district the other day and the the sun was hitting this wall right through a tree and so that's the photo of the wall that was very cool I was really struck by that one now would you ever think about seriously getting in photography like wanting to print and have shows and all that kind of stuff I've not thought of that um you know I'm pretty pretty slammed in the music business it, t- it consumes all of my day every day for <laughs> 30 years now so i yeah. just uh, i've never thought of that but if you've got some ideas let me know <laughs> <laughs> you know the the photos uh they go onto instagram and then i kind of take them off the phones i don't even know saving they probably would be good you know two by two, or two yeah. by- we could probably do a four by four it could be really arty could have a miniature exhibition <laughs> <laughs> We could have an exhibition for horse jockeys. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I got that from Christopher Guest. <laughs> That's pretty funny. This sort of stuck in my head. Well, we should probably talk about mastering. Um, so your studio was the first mastering studio I ever went in. And, oh. and Ruben was young and really, I think, fairly new at that point. And you put me in his room and said, show her what you're doing. And he put me in the sweet spot. I've never been in the sweet spot before that time. And that blew my mind. It was the most amazing thing in the world. So I will never forget that. And you know, I remember that. It was a very long time ago. And what's remarkable is that he's still young. I know he is. He came to me, uh, just for the listeners, we're talking about Ruben Cohen. He came to me when he was 18 years old. and. when I when I said that to him, I was watching how he was conducting himself with you. You know what I mean? That's like, you know, training him and all that stuff right. and, and making sure he, he kind of properly was communicating and all that stuff. So I remember that. That's historic. I did not realize that was your first experience. Yeah. Why don't you talk a little bit about how your career has evolved over time? Um, 
what kind of projects you started with when you started mastering and and uh, and what's going on today and and how did it evolve from the beginning to 30 years later? Well, when I came out to L.A., you know, I had a Berkeley degree, went back to D.C. where my parents were living. And I was thinking, now what? You know, so I said to my parents, I wanted to live in L.A. And so they got me a plane ticket to go to L.A. to check it out. And I and I landed in L.A. with no plan. No people, no nothing. This was 91, no, no cell phones, no internet, no nothing. And I didn't know anybody uh, here. Uh, well, I actually did, but I didn't realize it. And so I kind of, you know, looked around and I thought, oh, well, this isn't going to work. Flew back to D.C. And when I got back to D.C., I thought, well, this isn't going to work either. So I have to be on the scene, you know. So my mom... He was very supportive, my dad too, both both very supportive of trying to allow me to find my place. My mom said, I'll lend you my car, which was a Nissan Sentra, and take it out to LA. And when you get things going, you can give it back to me, which I never did. Hi. If your son, you know, wants to eventually borrow your car to go situate himself somewhere, don't expect it back. I already knew the ending to that part of the story. That's sort of <laughs> We still joke about it. So I got out to LA and and discovered I did know somebody. And that person had a friend who applied to work for Doug Sachs and didn't get the job and very generously told me that I should apply. So within a week of being in LA, I went out, visited Doug. And if anybody listening here knows or knew Doug, he's also gone now. He was a you know, sort of a wild, eccentric guy. And he, he looked at my resume, didn't even look at it. With, you know, there's nothing on it. What What's to right, see? Right. You know, you puff it up. It's basically just, I went to Berkeley, you know. And he, his, he, what he taught me there is something I still use today. When you see somebody with a degree, you don't have to look so much into it other than to look at the fact that they stayed with a commitment until they graduated. It, it tells you something about that person if mm -hmm. they hung in there with it. So I, I, I learned from that, from that moment. Didn't realize I was learning already, but I was. And he gave me the job, entry level, picking up sandwiches, you know, uh, making boxes that would house the cutting lacquers, you know, all types of entry level stuff, you know. So um, I kind of just worked my way into the system from there. And uh, one of the engineers, they left pretty early into my time there. And I just kind of filled in and I said to Doug, you know, let, let me do this this engineering, you know, and um, he said, no, you got no gray hair and nobody's going to trust you. <laughs> so I, as you can see, I figured out the gray hair part and I just kind of worked, worked my way in and, and sort of worked my way into his trust and his heart and all that stuff. And in the, within the first year or two of, of working there, my job was at that point to assemble the album reel. So we would get these big boxes of analog tapes. And I would sit there with a razor blade and splicing tape and put these, put the choice mixes on big reels so that when you, back then the way we used to work is we would work on each song and write down settings for each song. And then we had a night person that would come in and replicate the settings and cut them over to vinyl. And that's, that's how it was done back then. It's not done like that anymore. But uh, I had to do all that album assembly work. And every day, I mean, you would have, James Taylor one day, the Doobie Brothers the next day, you know, Jackson Brown the next day, 
Um, it just was endless cycle of people like that. I mean, it was an embarrassment of riches. I've never uh-huh. used it, but I've always liked it. Uh, now I've used that term. So, <laughs> but it really was, you know, and I was, I just kind of got used to being around this. And uh, I got to know Al Schmidt. I got to know Ed Journey. He was working with Don Was at the time and everybody in between, just the entire Pro Audio community. And they all liked me because I didn't, I didn't ever want anything from them. I was there to work and serve them. Right. The relationships are set up perfectly because that's what I've learned in life. You know, you have to figure out what you can do to serve, right? Right. Pretty much. Don't ever try to take anything. Take a seat at the table. That's all you can ever take. Um, And if you have that, it it can only be given to you. If it comes willingly, you cannot try to take it, you know. And you can't force your way to that table. That's all that was ever important to me, and that's all that remains important to me, and I and I'm honored to have it, uh, you know, knowing that it it won't always be. But at that time, that's that process was starting, and then indie labels started coming in, and one thing that I noticed, and I've never said what I'm about to say publicly, but one of the one of the things that I noticed when independent labels were coming, uh, and this was mid '90s, early to mid '90s. They would always watch the clock because, you know, they're operating a much less of a budget and they'd be nervous that maybe we're going one or two hours more, you know. So I came up with this idea and I took it to Doug and he wasn't into it. And I said, let's flat rate these projects for the indie mm-hmm. labels. Let's just say, look, we always have a sense of how long it's going to take, right? Let's just cap it. This is what it's going to cost you to work on this album. And, you know, it'll come out in the wash later, whatever, you know. And and he eventually went for it. I, I hung in there. I, I don't know if I can take credit for this, but I was definitely one of the first, if not the first people in the industry to come up with flat rates, which is how the industry works now. Right. So I want credit for it, but it's possible that I, that I did that. I, I, I did it within our facility and, and then everybody started doing it. So that the independent music community really appreciated that. And, and we got a lot of work that came out of it. And then I started to work with some really heavy hitter bands, you know, in the, in the kind of mid, late 90s, Green Day, you know, um, you know bands like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then that sort of gravitated over to uh, T-Bone Burnett found me, you know, in the, in the late 90s. And we still work together. We've been together ever since. One of the most meaningful relationships that I still have is with Jackson Brown. Uh, I met him early days. and. Ed Trony would be working with these records and, you know, also the late, great Greg Ladani. It, it was, it was interesting. I don't think I worked with, with Jackson and Ladani, but Ladani was with Jackson before I, I actually was connected with him, but it was all that community in that. Circle. Right. And there's still relationships that I made back then that, 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 that work, you know, Steve Lukather, the, the guys from Toto, we just did a whole big thing for them. Jackson, we're still working on new projects. We're reissuing some of the older projects. Uh, we were working and running on MT when you guys did that that performance with him at the Tech Awards. Uh, right, yeah. We were working on reissuing Running on Empty with him during that. So it was fun for him to play that, I imagine. Yeah. With the original musicians, no less. Yeah, yeah. So these relationships continue. Um, and the industry's changed now. It's all independent. Even the huge artists are independently controlled. They They control their own destinies. And... You know, I could talk a lot about how the industry's changed and what it is now, but what's very meaningful to me is is that those relationships have continued and 
you know, people like T-Bone Burnett are still in the fold. I mean, you know, we just did a new project for him that, that will be announced soon. So I'll let him announce it, but it's going to be big. And uh, that's uh, pretty exciting. Yeah, it's, it's cool stuff. So just, you know, just hung in there. Ruben Cohen has come up into the ranks and also got a seat at the table. And I'm very, very proud of him. He and I are sort of partners now, equals, you know, just keeping alive the legacies of people like Doug Sachs and Al and Ed and Greg and uh, all these people that I learned from. I learned, you know, how to, how to do this, how to conduct yourself, how, how to process audio, you know, how to make it the best it can be, serve the clients, Ser- serving the fans, really. You serve the fans, serving the artist and the client, but ultimately serving the people that consume music. Right. Do you think that people coming into the industry now, whether it's their students or their change career, whatever, can have that same experience of these lifelong relationships? Oh, absolutely. I think it's, I think they should seek that out. And you can tell, you know, I, I just got a message from a guy on Instagram who, I don't know how he pronounces his name, but it's K-U-U, and uh, he's in South Africa. And he reached out, sent me an Instagram message about our plugin with IK Multimedia. Uh-huh. And I gave him some technical tips. And I, I noticed he was living in South Africa in Johannesburg. And so we started communicating a little bit. And I said, oh, let me hear your mixes. And he goes, oh, my God, you would listen to my mixes? And I said, yeah, send them. <laughs> you know? So that's the beginnings of these types of relationships. I've had so many relationships that have started that way. What's remarkable to me and I'm sure people like Al would look at it this way as well, is the note from this person, that's somebody who's so committed to what they're doing, which is attractive to me. Right, right. I'm sitting here working on all this music in America, and he's South Africa, probably wanting to get to, you know, to live in LA like a lot of people around the world do. And I think that so many people are just so accessible. And these young, fresh faces that come in, I don't think they realize how accessible these people are. But one of the most profound experiences I've had is something that you set up with this mentoring program that you do. Because you see these students come and interact with this crew of pro audio professionals that are so incredibly generous with their time and their spirit and their knowledge. Right. And these these kids are just gobsmacked, their mouths hanging open going, Oh my God, I didn't realize these people were so accessible. And they are. And I and I think that if these kids get involved and, and get to know these people and learn and interact, then they can then push that information forward to the generations that come up under them. And I think these relationships are a must, especially now that everybody's working remotely. We're yeah. you know, it looks like we lead this incredibly glamorous life of connectivity, but in fact, we spend most of our time alone. Right. Working, you know, that's what, that's what uh, is most shocking to them that, that I've noticed. When you in one them. room. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What, let's start backwards. So what is your biggest mistake and how did you overcome it during your working career mastering? Biggest mistake. Interesting. Wow. The kids all seem to like to know how you screwed up and how you made it okay or how you kept going forward. Interesting. Well, you know, it's an interesting question because there's so many checks and balances. There's a method, there's kind of a formula to the steps you take 
to start something and then end something. So it's very difficult, having developed that methodology, to actually make a mistake because the mistakes get caught when you have okay. a methodology like that. I mean, there, there are little technical things that can happen. You know, uh, back in the early days of digital, it was easy, much more easy to make a, a mono file accidentally. So there'd be that kind of thing. But, you know, Tiburon Burnett taught me something. He was working at different facilities and somebody uh, shipped him a, a, a ref with a dropout. Now, in the early days of CD refs, we used to make them off of a digital tape. And those digital tapes would, would very easily have dropouts. And we had machinery that would catch a dropout. So a dropout, just for people who might not know, is when the audio mutes for a split second or, or, or less, you know? Uh -huh. So every now and then a dropout would get on a CD because the machinery wouldn't catch it. You know, it's not like you can sit in front of it and listen to it print. And it happened, you know? But T-Bone was telling me, wow, you know, so they sent me, uh, these people sent me a ref and it had a dropout and, you know, it just throws me out. And if they really care about me, they wouldn't, send me that they would, they would make more effort to verify it and i thought wow you know this is the perspective of a record producer who does not have time to be messing around with technology he wants to feel secure right so i thought you know you you really have to pay attention to that and you you have to be consistent as well you cannot do a job for him that's a little more you know than a job you do for somebody else you just have to be who you are every day and 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 that's available to everybody. That's your service. You have to right. that from within. That has to be your output. And if you can hang on to various clients with that output, then that's who you are. That's what you're made of. That's how you're measured. So I think based on that, that's all, all of this information that comes to you and you develop this methodology on how to work to prevent mistakes and at least catch them step by step before right. you achieve something. Right. You know? Yeah, so you're creating your brand, right, with this consistency across the board. Yeah, I suppose it is a branding exercise because, you know, in, in our business, your name is is your brand, you know. Right. So when people think of you, this they probably think of various styles of music, but also a code of conduct. How Exactly, yeah. All of that. Yeah. You know, it's all inclusive. What about favorite project? Do you have one? Well, that's another interesting question because um I'm glad I have interesting questions. <laughs> well, well it, it it is because when I when I go in and listen as I as I was pointing out a minute ago, I don't show up to enjoy the music. Whether it's good or bad, it's just irrelevant. It doesn't mean anything. Yeah, I you cannot go in and 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 listen to every record I've ever worked on and and love it. And nobody can in this business. What you have to do is, is be of service. So my service is to promote best practices. My service is to promote new people coming into the industry. My service is to make audio sound good. My service is to make artists feel good, producers feel good, record labels feel like they're getting fairly invoiced. My service is to make people feel good, and especially the fans. The fans have to listen to it and go, Oh my God, I didn't realize digital could sound that way. You know, that that's the service. So my, my soul is fed by, by that, by mm -hmm. how that's received. Right. My favorite project is the body of work. You know what I'm saying? Interesting. Yes. No, I totally understand. You know, but if you were to come in and listen to my playlist, I don't have one. I listen to audiobooks. 
I listen to the silence of nature when I'm camping on the motorcycle, and I listen to Pink Floyd. I'm a Pink Floyd junkie. I that's cannot remember David Gilmore's guitar solos. I, <laughs> that's in part what drove me, you know, and, and this artist, Michael Hedges. Those two, those two things I just will listen to over and over the rest of my life. And, you know, I, I got to do a lot of work with Pink Floyd in the 90s with Doug Sachs. So, you know, I met my heroes and I've come to know one of our mutual friends, Stephen Miller, pretty well, who produced and brought Michael Hedges into the industry. He was also now gone, died in a car accident. So I listened to very little stuff and, and very little new music because I'm exposed to so much music. But I mean, if, you know, I brought up T-Burn Burnett a few times. If you listen to some of that, those records, very proud of those because they, I don't know, there's just a perfect storm of people making those sounds. And, yeah. you know, you can, it's amazing what you can actually get onto these digital platforms and make them sound truly full of depth and sound. Mm -hmm. That just shows you what you actually can do with these tools. You know, that Oh Brother, Where Art Thou soundtrack was was a good one. I, I, I enjoy that. I'll put that on and listen to it. There's some really beautiful music on there, you know, so that, that, that kind of stuff sticks out. Right. I think it's so interesting that people in the industry a lot, like there's a, um, a live sound guy that I know that does a lot of really big shows. And I asked him once I was doing an event with him and I'd picked him up at the airport and we're driving back to the venue. And I said, so what do you listen to when you're not working? He said, I don't listen to anything. And then I was talking to uh, the head of audio post at a, a studio, film studio. I said, well, what kind of movies do you like? Where do you watch when you're not here? He said, I don't watch any of them. And it's kind of like what you were saying is that you're, you're all exposed to it so much that this thing that you love, but there's so much of it in your work life that you don't have it a lot in your personal life. Yeah, you're, you know, when you have decibels coming at you all day long, listening to nature, very serene and meditative. Right. It's yeah. nice to incorporate all of that. But you know, I've I've worked on a lot of hit songs that when I'm in the studio, you know, you can sometimes tell it's gonna be a hit, especially, you know, who's around it, the machinery, the the labels, the excitement, you can sort of tell they're gonna work it and it's got that ingredient about right. it. But a lot of times not. And and then I'll hear that same music if I'm walking through the Beverly Center and it's playing Right. Yeah, and I'll and I'll be like, oh my god, that's a good song, you know. I have, <laughs> and didn't didn't realize it, you know. It's funny. I was working with Ruben one time. He had a I forget who the artist was, but it was a hip hop artist. And this was probably ten years ago. We were in Hollywood at the time at our Hollywood location, and there was a community of people that would gather, kind of across the parking lot each night. They'd skateboard and do whatever they did. And we worked on this hip hop tune. You could tell it was going to be something, you know. And then we heard it from the car of somebody the next day. Wow. It, was, it went out right away. And, and they were playing it in their car, skating around on the street, doing, the, doing what they do. And we had it in our studio. And they had no idea that it was just, it came from there. Wow. It, it, was, it was fun. Yeah. Hip hop is the new popular genre, right? Yeah. And the cool Netflix documentaries out there. Yeah. It seems like a lot of the artists are, you know, they're releasing right from their studios. It's kind of changed the whole thing. And they don't really understand the importance of mixing and mastering, right? 
how do you explain to them why mastering is actually an important step of what they're doing? We never do that um, because, first of all, it would be a biased opinion. And, you know, I mean, it has to be a biased opinion. It can only be. What happens with that, and we've seen it over and over because it's not the first time that something like that has been the case, is the cream rises. You know, people start to, you know, there's a, there's a thing that happens, it hits, and then it starts to take its shape. And mm-hmm. ultimately, people realize that, you know, you take that extra step and you're going to get something out of it. It's when nothing comes out of it that it'll fall away. But so far, people do eventually realize that this is something that elevates their music. And it's just always been like that. I think it always will. Okay. Yeah. It happens organically is what I'm saying. Okay. When um, we were conceptualizing this podcast, I contacted the Conservatory of Recording Arts and Sciences. They're like my go-to tester school. And I asked for questions from their students, what they would be interested in finding out. And several of them wanted to know about analog versus digital. So do you have a favorite in one style or the other? And do you usually do a certain type when you're working in your studio? We're a full analog console, but it's, um, you know, it really takes, it would take several hours to explain it out because if you, if you really break it down, all of music is analog. It all starts out analog and ends up analog. In order for uh, a performance to vibrate air molecules and then microphones to get that vibration of air molecules, which in scientific terms is a form of heat. You're, you're pushing molecules more than they're normally vibrating and you're manipulating how they vibrate. That's, that's what create, creating music is and talking, anything that creates sound. You capture that. It goes through a microphone, which is an analog signal through a wire. It then has to hit a, a series of things to become digital. An interface, which sets the language of it, an analog to digital converter, and then, uh, actually, well, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll talk about my chain in a moment, but, you know, an analog to digital converter, and then the gain structure that goes with that. So you cannot just go through the converter. You actually have to set the gain correctly so that it captures at a level that's usable. It doesn't have too much hiss or it's mm-hmm. not recorded or something like that. And the art of that, uh, I have seen best results come from the people that are very versed in analog technology because you have to know how to manipulate that. And then you work on it digitally. It's not music, it's, it's data. In order to hear it as music, it has to then get reconverted from digital back to analog, then go through amplification, and then go to speakers, and the speaker will push it out by vibrating this cone uh-huh. to re-manipulate the air molecules to make sound again. So it's not sound unless it's that. It's sound when you capture it. It's sound when you play it back. In between, it's data, you know? So this is what to think of. And, and the secret sauce in all of this is the gain structure, the way that, that you capture that and level it and the way you play it back and level it. So you have to understand the technology of conversion, analog to digital, digital to analog conversion, and gain structure and interfacing. So you really have to have a handle on all of this stuff in addition to all of the other stuff that you have to know. It's quite an art. And, and these greats that we've been referring to, they have a handle on all the stuff. It's just intrinsic, you know, intuitive, but, but also uh, based on a knowledge base. And I've been in this industry where I've seen 
the conversion from all analog to hybrid to all digital. Mm-hmm. But all digital is analog because you have to go through that, that process I mentioned, that chain of events. So for me, when music comes to me, I'll take the file. Um, I'll do that stuff. I'll do my analog work. I'll do it all on, on the analog board. And then I'll bring it to, to the client that way and, that, and they'll decode it. Their system. You have to also understand our consumer grade equipment works, how the phone works in playing back audio. You have to understand what's going to happen there. And that, that informs us what to do on our analog console. But now what we're starting to do as well is we're starting to do some hybrid processing. Mm-hmm. And I've made it my mission during COVID to actually get a handle on, on plugins to the point where I can replicate what I do analog. Sit you down in front in that sweet spot you mentioned earlier on the console and you can try to pick which did i work on the song digital or did i work on an analog oh interesting i haven't got there yet but if i can get you know anybody to the point where they don't know then i'm somewhere on that yeah so analog is our dominant force you know people are calling now and saying i want to make sure to get the analog console you know because we didn't we did a plug-in based on our console um so some people think we work digitally so they they reiterate and make sure that we have that analog console. Right. But we're an analog house. We're known that way, and people rely on us for that. You know, but that's some background to it. Okay. Last question: If you have one tip for people, and primarily students coming into the industry, what would you tell them? Um, well, it's hard to get that down into one. Okay, you could have two. Two. Okay. Um, <laughs> code of conduct is a big deal. You know, commitment. Um, Commitment to your vision, commitment to the industry, commitment to, I guess, the, the, the whole essence of what we do as you, as you add up all the elements of it, you know, a commitment to that. Probably the biggest thing that I've taken from my 30 years in, in this industry is to understand the give-take cycle of everything. You can never take and you can never give. It has to be both. You have to know what you're receiving. And, and and know what you're giving so you don't deplete yourself. Right. Um, and and just focus it where you, where you want that's going to best serve everybody. I mean, there's the give-take cycle. You know, what, what do I receive? I'm happy and fulfilled and don't want any more than just a seat at the table. It's always been like that for me. It's all I need. What can I give to the system? Well, I can give to young people coming in and, and, and learning and doing well. You know, uh, I can give what I give to the service of what I do so the fans can enjoy the music and then the artists and the clients are happy. So I've figured out the give take for me. Uh, It's different for everybody. So probably just figure out how you can serve and what it's going to mean to you as to what you're going to receive back with that. I think, I think people are focused on what they can do to serve uh, generally receive back more than people go out and try to take. And that probably is the biggest lesson in it all. So it's a, it's more of a conduct thing, you know, because, you know, with the right passion, anybody can attain any type of skill to do anything in any industry. That's really who you are as a person. And I think we're just at a time in, in history where, you know, togetherness is something we really need to promote. I agree. So much working against that, you know? Um, yeah. So that's probably where I'd go with, with that. Okay. Those are both good ones. Cool. Okay. I think we're done. Thanks for listening to this episode of One and Done. 
Don't forget to check out today's show notes and our YouTube channel for more from our guests. And subscribe to our KMD Pro weekly resource guide on kmdpro.com. This podcast is produced by Jules Everson and Stephanie LeBond. Our audio engineer is Corey Klotz. We'll see you next time.